Hi, my name's Jason Barcham. I'm an associate partner with Servian New Zealand. Welcome to the Technology Whisperers, a technology and innovation podcast brought to you by Servian with your hosts Alistair Ross and Sean Muller. Join us as we demystify the latest emerging innovative technologies for businesses of all shapes and sizes, sharing our thoughts on how you can improve your current technologies, practices and processes to transform your business. So welcome to the Technology Whisperers podcast, episode number one, the inaugural episode of Technology Whisperers. I have with me my co-host, Alistair Ross, principal, hey, principal consultant for Servian in New Zealand, security expert, engagement expert, technology, ancient technology expert. Can I say that? Which you have a lot of experts in there, but oh, I, um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm worthy of quite as many experts. Oh, but sure, I'll I'll take them for now, and we can we can knock them all on the head. But sure, absolutely, I do I do like my vintage computing stuff. It's a bit of an obsession, really, Sean. I I don't I don't quite understand just how it happened, but at one point we'll have to talk about nostalgia, power of nostalgia. Yeah, we uh, we ought to do we ought to do it at some point. We'll do an episode on nostalgic computers because I have I have quite a bit of nostalgia, although I didn't bring all of it with me to to New Zealand. But yeah, I think we could do that. Mm. And I'm Sean Muller, principal architect and practice lead for Enterprise AIML for Servian in New Zealand. And this is the Technology Whispers podcast, a technology and innovation podcast brought to you by Servian. So, Sean, just before we get rolling, the technology whisperers, right? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a cool name. I got I, I got to be honest, I really like it. I like the technology whisperers. It's like you know, you get the horse whisperers. Oh and yeah, all yeah, that. yeah, absolutely. It, it sounds cool. Sounds cool. I like it. I like it. It was your it was your idea, but but just just a question. You know, yeah. I'm not exactly a whisperer. I'm quite quite loud. And <laughs> and, and Sean, I mean, if it's okay with me saying. You're not you're not exactly the most quiet person in the whole wide world either. I'm not. I although uh, I am I am actually quite a, an extreme introvert, at which a lot of people that listen to my other podcast, Kiwi Innovators, or that work with me are like, no, no, you're not an introvert. No, no, no. But and, and by the way, I, I did some research before we named it this, and people that manage horses do not like the term horse whisperer. Interesting. They, they, yeah, they they consider that because it. it it, it adds some kind of mysticalness to. Uh, are, you, are you saying that we are now mystical people? I I, I, I feel being. like um, I feel like I need to get a wizard's hat. I I, I have a wizard's walking stick over here, but no no no. So I you know I read a book, The Tech Whisperers, and we can we can talk about that in the future. But I think it, there's some connotations to the technology whisperers, and that's that we have a huge landscape of technology nowadays, especially from an enterprise business perspective, every business outcome, all business value has some kind of technology tie-in. I mean, e- even if you go into farming, you know, the least, the most analog, least technology driven is massively technology driven. And I think that the, the connotation out of technology whisperers is, is that we're going to help to demystify and decomplicate the understanding of a couple things. One, what the technology is and how it actually does it. Two, what business outcomes and business values you can get from the technology. So it changes it from a, well, we're doing technology because it's cool to, no, 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 we're doing a technology because it gives us this business outcome and business value. And the third is, is that identifying what investments in technology are going to provide the best outcome. One of the things you and I have talked a lot about, and I think we've got a, a planned podcast in the future about legacy tech or underinvestment in technology and technical debt. I think that from the business side and executives within large enterprises, because the technology is so mystical in what it does and how it does it, they don't know where to, they don't know where to invest. So they're dependent on their, their technology people to tell them, no, 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 you need to invest. We need to go to Azure. You need to put your stuff on Azure. And, and they don't understand 
the complications and cost and difficulty to go from their on-premise AD to Azure AD as an example. And, the, and they don't understand the business impact for not doing it versus doing it. And I think, so in my mind, the technology whispers, what we're planning to do, and I, I want your take on this as well, is, is that we're going to try and help demystify and decomplicate that technology landscape in a way that, you know, a business leader could listen to us talking about, you know, technical debt or AIML or security investments. And after that, they would feel a little bit more comfortable comfortable making technology decisions for their business. I wholeheartedly agree with you, Sean. I mean, the, the whole point of the, this pod, podcast is really to demystify these things. Yep. Uh, I think, you know, thinking about my own trials and tribulations, I've worked in IT all my life. I, I started out in IT when I was 16 years old, and I'm sure we'll regale stories of our own past in, in this podcast as we go through. However, this part is, is relevant to say because even as recently as probably, I don't know, I, I, I'll, I'll name, I won't name any of the companies I work for, but or at least not now, but uh, probably even as recently as seven years ago, I worked for a company who had um, an IT department that was fully occupied by IT people. Yeah. And there was a complete misalignment of the business and the IT. So though we're all technology people over here doing the technology thing, love technology, did it for all the right reasons, right? There yeah. wasn't anybody doing anything for malicious intent that I know of. And then there was the business. And it was the things that the business needed to do. And the two were completely different oh, yeah. beasts. They had no clue of each other. I mean, the IT well, department. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the business saw IT as a cost center that cost them money. Yep. And with no understanding of the business value that the technology provided. Yeah. Yeah. And they were like, why do we have to pay this big bill? I mean, this is, and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger every year. There's runaway costs, all that sort of stuff. And only, and, and I feel like that that is a, you know, it's not a complete wholesale representation of um, IT in New Zealand, but certainly over the last sort of 10 years, I think there's been somewhat of a transformation. And we're not completely shifted into that transformation yet. Yeah. But the transformation is where the business is finally getting its grappling hooks around technology and saying, right, okay, technology is really important for business, right? Yeah. Like you said, whether it's farming or, 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 you know, the most highest of tech, tech thing. <laughs> I can't think Finance. of any. Finance. Finance, right. Yeah. Sure. Right. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. So. Whatever it's something really high tech or whether it's something, you know, what we consider low tech, the business is now taking the bull by the horns and saying, well, actually we need to have technology to make our business outcomes better. Because yeah. if you don't, then you're going to be worse than the competitor, right? You're yeah. not going to have the competitive edge. And so that's well understood now. I think that part is well understood. And what, what businesses are still trying to grapple with is getting that advantage with their own technology team. And yeah. having people in their technology team speak the language of business. And yeah. so that's really important. And I think, you know, what we are here in this podcast, hopefully to do is like you see that demystification is really important where we can just align the technology that's out there right now, the, the hot, the, the new stuff and yeah. say, look, actually when it boils down to it, really what we're talking about is X, Y, Z. We're not talking about rocket science here. We're right. literally talking about, you know, this cool technology over here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All these marketing people are saying all these cool, white, wild, wacky technical things. Sounds really complicated. Actually, it's not. It's this old thing with a shiny new facade yeah. and, and everything yeah. like that. Or, or it is a completely brand new thing. There's not that many completely brand new things. But in the cases where those are, completely brand new innovations, I think it's really important that we we sort of dissect them in a non-technical fashion or as the least as a, an abstracted fashion as possible so that it makes sense to, you know, people who are, are just trying to get the results that they need yeah. for their business. Yeah, and I think, so I think there's, from the from the, what we're trying to do with this podcast, I think there's huge benefit from the business side, right? Because if, if the business is if the demystification happens and the business feels more comfortable asking for the technology they need, that's great. 
there's a flip side to it. The flip side is, is that if the technology people listen to this podcast and go, oh, when we talk about this, this is the way we need to talk about it. So business gets it. Then the technology teams, because I, 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 you know, I, I remember, and, and I'm in the same boat as you. I, I think I have 30 years of experience doing IT. I took a hiatus between 16 and, and 22 we can talk about that in the future, but for the most part, I've been to doing you, IT. You know what, Sean? I will let you off. Okay? Yeah, thank you. I'll let you off. Okay. But I, I, I worked for an IT outsourcing company that, look, it was a company that outsourced IT for hospitals in the U.S. And the business side that sold to these hospitals to basically get the hospitals to outsource their IT systems to us didn't see the IT department that was building the solutions that were being outsourced onto as anything more than a cost center that they had to spend money on. I, I remember sitting in a meeting with the CFO and, and the CIO, and they said, yeah, you guys, you guys need to figure out how to be more profitable within your department. And I went, unless you're going to let me go build something, I can't be profitable. I'm the guy that I was at the time I was a network architect. I, I'm, I can reduce costs by designing and building the network better, but you guys are selling a product. If you want me to support you selling the product that, I mean, they, IT outsourcing company, they didn't get it. Yeah, that, that's very sad, isn't it? I think as well, a lot of the times when technology folk are looking at new products, it's quite easy, you know, like everything, ev like everything out there quite easy for people to have four different opinions of what something actually is, especially when it's new. I mean, go back to when cloud started out 10 years ago, right? When, when you first asked uh, a, a technical person what cloud was, what DevOps was, you got yeah. 10 different answers. And, and, you know, over the years, you know, I think that there's a lot more people these days that can give you a succinct answer about what cloud is and probably okay. slightly lesser about what DevOps is. But I think, you know, that, that, that is, you know, something that if there was people at the beginning of all of these journeys to actually just demystify again, I, yeah. I like the word demystify, I'm going to take it right from your shot. Uh, and, and so basically, if there was that approach of just taking down, stripping these things back and taking it back to its bare, bare bones of what it is, then, you know, maybe that would help garner a bit more understanding of these technologies and, yeah. and I guess remove a bit of FUD the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and yep. also remove some of the, I guess, the nonsense that's that's going about that really is is a distraction. Well, and I, yeah, I think it would I think it would facilitate adoption of new technologies. It would it would facilitate you know the the dealing with technical debt, which is like I said, that's an entire episode for us, but. Yeah, no, I, I so I I do think it it I think this is the right way to go, and I think that if people listen to our podcast, I think they'll get a lot of value from it. Now, all of that being said, Alistair, starting at sixteen in technology, I, I mean, what, what? So, what does your career look like? Because based on your accent, neither you nor I are from New Zealand, so in Wellington, New Zealand. So, I, so let's start off with how you got here. <laughs> oh goodness, yeah, okay. So how did I get here? How did I get here as in the, the road to the, the, the job I do these days? Or how yeah. did I get here yeah. as in how did I get to New Zealand? Both. I mean, there's got, they've got, oh, to, be, well, they've got to be intertwined, right? I mean, right. Okay. So originally, <laughs> yes, they are. Originally, I'm uh, from Scotland. So yeah, <laughs> the heck you say um, for my sins. You know, I think that, you know, relatively speaking, I think people can understand me. Um, oh, you have a, a look. You have a beautiful accent, but you are completely understandable. And I have, I had, I've had both Irish and Scottish mates that had very bad accents to the point where I could barely understand them after one or two beers. But so, of course, of course, course. I, I like to, I like yeah. to, yeah. And and yeah. look, I'm, I think I'm probably the same. When when I've had a few too many sweet sherries off an evening, you know, there there could be an occasion where. You, this perfectly understandable accent might uh, go out of the window. But I think one of the reasons why I would like to think that I'm fairly understandable to all dialects, so Americans included, is because I, you know, 
not uh, the only adjunct to my IT career was that I did a bit on radio, broadcast radio, and also a bit or oh, a bit of um, DJing back in the back in the day. So at the same time, when I was sort of figuring out what I wanted to do with my life, so I was quite young. I I, I had this sort of decision to make of whether I was going to go into radio or whether I was going to go into IT. And at the time, I think I was, I think it was about 16. Um, and I said to myself, what pays more? And I sort of, yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the, IT, the IT thing won out quite quickly after that. It was only, there was only a few more years of um, teetering about and doing, um, doing my radio stints and doing my nightclub DJing and stuff like that. Um, so after a while, that was, that was absolutely that. But, uh, but, but every now and again, I dabble. The, uh, the radio have... gets more girls. The, the radio DJing gets more girls than the IT. Well, the, yeah, yeah, I suppose so. That that's that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess I guess like me going, hey, I'm I'm an IT nerd, uh, has never really won me much in the way of affection. So so I was. So I was about sixteen. I was I was even younger than that, Sean. I'll tell you I'll tell you the story. That I don't want to bore the pants with people, but when I was about, I gotta say, I think it was about eight. And my father came along, and this this is why this is relevant because of all the junk behind me in my room. Sure. If, you, if you're listening to this, and not watching this, then um, there's a whole bunch of vintage computers behind me, and and again, it all harked back to that nostalgia thing. But when I was about eight, I think my father bought a, a second-hand clone PC. It was a clone of an IBM PC XT, and that there, that thing there behind me, is an IBM PC XT. Yeah. Anyway. This had a green screen and it made lots of noise and it did very little and it was very slow. But up until that point in my life, it was like something just switched on. It was, yeah. it was wonderment. It, you know, there was this computer that, that did almost nothing, but yeah. I could do anything with it. I could tell it what to do. And, yeah. you know, I can't tell people what to do. They don't, they don't like that very much if I do. So I try to stay away from telling people what to do. But I really loved being able to, you know, make my own programs, make my own games, and just do just do all sorts of things. And then I would do it at school as well. And 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 I'd get in trouble, and I would start playing with the computer when I got chucked out of the classroom, yeah. <laughs> and and stuff like that. And then I got chucked out of school. I got I got thrown out of school, and I yeah. So so very quickly, my mum and dad said, "Look, you you've got to you know you, you got to get lost um, as well because you know you." You're causing trouble. So rather than go um, down the way of you know petty petty crime, I I went into IT and I I decided of my own back to get myself uh, a job and and that was um, repairing PCs. Nice. Um, back when PCs were very very big hulking things running you know MS DOS and whatsoever, and it was great fun. Yeah, I, I, I learned an awful lot of things. And, and yeah, it was, it was just a, a crazy time to be in the IT industry. And then I went into sort of web hosting. I remember web hosting was you huge. Put, 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 a, put a year on it. You got to give a year. Oh, what year was this? Web hosting. 1999? Somewhere around there. Somewhere around there. Some, it was around the turn of the century anyway, I'm going to say at that point. And <laughs> that was that was revolutionary because yeah. you know it was this market that had that unlike anything else in the world was seeing this unprecedented growth you know just nothing was growing yeah. like the dot-com bubble oh right? yeah Insane. it was yeah. just it was just a really exciting time to be well, around and and the investments to try and stem off the y2k you know cobol issue Meant there was a massive influx of money into just raw technology spend mm. for about two to three years right then. Yeah. So it, it was it was a melting pot. And it was, you know, I think these days it's easy to look back and say, oh, it was all it was all bad because there was yeah. all this stupid venture capital and stupid funding and, and everybody was just throwing money at the internet and and hoping that it was going to be this great big thing. But you know. There was also a lot of good stuff that happened in that era, and and it was truly the wild west, truly an exciting oh, yeah, time yeah. to be alive. And and you know if you if you weren't around then, it's kind of it's kind of sad because it really 
it's it's an experience that you'll never get again, really, yeah. in, in, in that particular way with the internet. So the internet 3.0, I think, is one of these days of something's going to come along and debunk yeah. what we do today, but that's a while off yet. I, I, I do have to ask, did you build any web pages with dancing Jesus, dancing baby gifts, and middies running in the background? Definitely, definitely had a GeoCities. Do you remember GeoCities? Yes, yes. <laughs> that was awesome fun. You know, that your creative juices could really flow when you're on GeoCities. Well, mean... So, in the, and for those of people that don't know anything about GeoCities, GeoCities, before Facebook, was probably the first... It wasn't social media. It was a community of websites and that, you know, you owned your own little, you know, your own little shop window in that community. Mm -hmm. I thought GeoCities was ahead of its time and the technology wasn't there for it to be able to do. And, and it, it was a sad day when they turned the GeoCities servers off. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot of history there. There's actually I can't I can't remember it's like it's like New Nuevo Cities or something like that I yeah. can't I can't remember yeah. but there's somebody that uh, there's a company that spun up a new GeoCities but yeah, yeah like, like you say that the premise was very simple based on the technology at the time being very simple it was literally you could have your own website on your little corner of the web hosted on yeah. GeoCities and so they would they would categorize it wouldn't they you'd go to the yeah. main website of GeoCities.com yeah. and on there there would be like autos for people who are interested yeah. in car and so you would make your own little website based on yeah. cars or, or there was technology and so forth so there's all different sections it really was it really was a very big melting pot and and look there was millions of pages in the end oh, yeah. Um, yeah and there's most you know absolute you, crap oh yeah they were rubbish uh, you know that so they archived off the servers and they're available you can you can go BitTorrent, download the geocity server so you can see and you can spin them back up and see they don't take up very much room no i i, I might i might i might do that because uh, i mean i'm, I'm going to be i remember having a website called driver zone because there was no website out there that was quite comprehensive enough to, you know, to, to source drivers. And then, and then I started to figure out this, I think what, this is a learning exercise for me. I started writing this website in GeoCities, which had a frame. You remember HTML frames? Yes. So, I was like, so different types of drivers, like sound drivers, video drivers, all that sort of stuff. Pre-PHP. Pre-PHP. Oh, this is all static HTML right? All static. And you could only do limited HTML as well, because it would only allow you to do so much. Yeah. But I had the, the, all the categories down the left hand side. So you click one and then you'd get all the drivers and I would itemize them. And then I, you know, I think I got about halfway through, not even halfway through. I got this, I got some of the way through and I realized how the heck am I going to manage this? Like, how am I going to update these drivers? <laughs> how, you know, writing these pages, there's this pages upon pages upon pages. This is a massive, massive task. And it's static HTML, you know, and, 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 and you can only upload something like 15 megs or something like that. So, you know, I, I ran out of hosting space immediately, you know. So <laughs> it, it was just a, it was a no go. But I think that realization, uh, a lot of other people, on the internet, we're also having the same realization. Yeah, the static HTML wasn't going to cut it, and it needed yeah. some sort of dynamic content. So there was things like PHP, Perl, goodness, Perl began. Yeah, began this sort of dynamic web that we know sort of know today, and it was all happening at that sort of time. So it was around the turn of the century or the turn of the millennium, and yeah, it was, it was a fantastic time to be alive. And I was a, a web hosting company. I was sort of the Linux, Unix, sysadmin at the time. So I was building the servers and maintaining the servers that were looking after these websites and, and receiving calls from, you know, hosting customers, helping them out, you know, with FTP and yep. stuff like that and making send mail M4 configuration <laughs> files and all that sort of great stuff. And and I, you know, you know, I look back on these times with really fond memories. And, and I guess it was probably because, you know, this was the the change it was it it always always even then felt like the change in some yeah. something something big was happening something yeah big. And, and everybody you know like there's moments in people's lives where you say well <clears throat> where were you when the twin towers came down for example yeah. well yeah. i was at that job i was watching 
the Twin Towers Come Down live on CNN. And, you know, horrible, horrible moment of, of you know, everybody's history. I mean, it was just a terrible, t- terrible time. But I was watching it there on the internet streaming. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that was, you know, a lot of people go, oh, well, I saw it on the television. Well, if you were in the UK at the time, you, 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 you know, you were watching it on the television, but it was delayed, you know, whereas I was actually watching through CNN live. And yeah. this was, you know, a revolution in technology that was, you know, clearly the way off the way forward was oh yeah was happening so yeah so that was that was kind of my start off so I was repairing pcs and i was on the internet and i was doing all that business and i actually had a side business i went off and did my own web hosting after that and then i was a sort of consultant for a while i was driving about in my car and you know going out to listen to small and medium businesses and listen to their problems and then try and develop yeah. some solutions most of them were based um on open source solutions. I got really, really into open source technology at that point. Linux was the sort of uprising. I felt like at that time, again, it was really exciting because there was this, you know, we'd we'd been lived, we had a live-in in in technology with proprietary technology forever. Yeah. Yeah. And, And licenses and subscriptions that we had to pay for. Yeah. So where was I? Open source. So there was this, the, up until I, I feel about 1999, so it was all around the same sort of time, all I'd known was proprietary software. And, yeah. and, and look, we were in this sort of world where we had no alternative and right. the software that we had, be it good, be it bad, you know, we were, this was it. We were told yeah. that's, that's what you get. Yeah. And, and, you, then and you, had us- to, you had to buy it or you had to license it or it had it came on the hardware. You, you had no other choices. There was there was not a way. I mean, even if you wanted to run DOS in '99, you had to buy the software. That was your only choice. That was it, right? And and so all of a sudden, you know, and I was getting I was getting a bit frustrated. I remember my desktop. I was I was I'd just gone back to university. I decided to get a degree. So I was, you know, I think it was like Windows '98 was yeah it was was out. And, and then I went to Millennium Edition or something like that. And it was horrible. And it just oh, crashed. Well, yeah, all Millennium the time. terrible. All oh, the time. Bad. Yeah. Horrendous. So I was so over it. I was really, really over the, the Windows operating system at the time. And and then I saw this advert. Well, I saw this magazine, actually, in a magazine shop. It's, it, call, it was called Linux Answers. I remember it very well. And on the front cover was Red Hat Linux, and I think it was Red Hat Linux 6. And, and I thought, what the heck is this Linux thing or Linux? I probably called it Linux, yeah, you know, like yeah, everybody probably. did back in those days. And I think, you know, long story short, fast forward, you know, a long time, fast forward many years, Linux is, is, is still relevant today. It's not, you know, it's not the same relevance, but... What it born because open source software was around before then, but really yeah, nobody had really heard of it. I mean, the Free Software Foundation started off life in 1984. Goodness yeah, me! Yeah, right? yeah. But up until Linux really became a mass market, which was around the the millennia, you know, that was the turning point. That was really when open source software changed the world. Oh, you know, yeah. all the hosting, all of the hosting, all the web servers. They were all running Linux. IAS was terrible. It just couldn't handle more than one website. And then there was Apache that came along and destroyed that. That whole business was turned on its end, you know, because you could run, you know, hundreds of websites on one server. And that's exactly what I ended up doing. I, I ran, you know, all these Linux servers in, in this web hosting company. And I was just amazed at the power of this. And if you were prepared to tinker just a little bit, and I, and I, was definitely a tinker. I was a technology dude. I loved getting my hands dirty, getting under the hood. And I think that was the difference between me and maybe other tech, other techie people. A lot of techie people were quite happy with being told, this is the way you do things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you click here, you go to this menu, you drop down and that's that. Whereas I thought, you know, I love to be able to know how this works. You know, I love that when you get a car, 
you know, I don't want it to be, you know, an engine closed off, you can't service it yourself, you have to take it to an authorized dealership, and then you get told, right, okay, you need to pay a premium for all of that. And that's the only way. I love the fact that you could go with Linux and do anything you wanted, you could compile your own kernel if you really wanted, yep. not that yep. I really wanted to do that. <laughs> but you could do everything from from yep. the ground up, you could really understand the way the operating system worked. And that that bore out a whole level of curiosity for me that has stood the test of time. That there was, you know, my IT career began years and years before then, but that was a, such a pivotal moment. I think that really formulated the rest of my career in IT and the curiosity about how things work. And just it just it, it had the, the, the roots from that original green screen XT that my father bought oh, when, yeah. because like, I was in MS-DOS and I had to figure out commands and all, and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but, you know, that was the moment when I, I really thought, I, I am in control of my entire destiny with this operating system. And all of the software that came along was free. And there were caveats around free software. Obviously, the quality isn't the same. You don't have support, all the rest. But, but then it got me thinking about, you know, the quality of the other enterprise software that was out there at the time and going, well, actually, IIS versus Apache, well, Apache is actually better. It's free and it's, yeah. it's more secure and it's less buggy. So, you know, it's not, the cost is not always related to the, the quality of the product. And yeah. so that, again, served a good lesson about when, when, when dealing later with, with businesses about bringing them on a journey about not just going for the the big shiny brand label and saying that's the choice to go for and it's so easy to do that because right. you know there's marketing budgets and so forth but there's there's you know a lot of different ways to to get the the software that you you, you should be using and yeah. that that's in itself is a bit of a, a gold mine, right? It's it's trying to find out what piece of software is the appropriate one for for your business's requirements. Right. That's a really right. difficult challenge, which we still face to this very day. And that, that has crossed over even into cloud and um, software as a service as well. It's still, you know, even though solutions are being made for us a lot of the time by these cloud vendors and these software vendors. It's it's still very much that we have such an, an, um, a plethora of choice that we have situation where we 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 have re really difficult time in making the the choice of which which product to go for. Yeah. Uh, just, well, just the other day, I was thinking about Power BI and and how great a product that is for businesses and how it enables businesses. Right. Great application, Power, power Apps. Right. And it really enables businesses to make their own applications, but that comes at a price tag. Yeah, well, and 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 it's only to support what you're saying it, it, for me as well. And, and it's only been this recently, is that I realize it's not just cost, right? It a, a dollar amount I pay, you know, for a license or a subscription, or I've bought a piece of software. It's also the cost of the people that run it and support it. The cost of the impact to my business for lack of security. If there's no security baked into it, there's there's all of these other costs. That from a business perspective, I don't think the businesses take that into account. They're, I mean, they're just looking at, well, I'm writing a check to somebody. Nobody writes checks anymore. I'm writing a, a PO to somebody for, you know, a piece of software. And the project that's implementing it is not taking into account any of the additional costs mm -hmm. with that piece of software. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in the closed source space now because I, and I remember having this discussion with somebody about probably about 10 years ago where I said, okay, the closed source team for this software has 10 developers that are working on it. This open source community for this open source so software has 2000 people developing on it. Now, which one's going to have bugs fixed faster? Which one's going to have security vulnerabilities fixed faster? So I, yeah, so I, yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's something that some businesses need to take into account, and and it's not something that I think they're thinking about even today. Yeah, uh, it, it's it, and it's very difficult. I, I empathize greatly with businesses, and I think that because I empathize greatly because I see 
businesses just wanting to get on and do what they do best, right? Yeah. They want, they've got a business goal in mind, they've got an outcome, and they don't want to have to think about the technology getting in the way. They, uh, yeah. want, they just want the quickest and easiest result, right? And, yeah. and, I, and I get that, and everybody wants that. And unfortunately I, I what, what i and and you're absolutely right and and if i look back so and i can talk about my career here in a second but when i look back i see you know 10 15 years ago businesses making decisions to buy monolithic solutions that they thought they were buying an off-the-shelf monolithic does everything i need it to do out of the box and then they get it in and they're so locked into that solution that they can't actually do what they want to do and they can't maintain the solution because it's they they they're locked if they upgrade one side they have to upgrade both sides and they're so but but it was a lack of understanding of the technology and the true cost and what the technology does and the true complication that made the business make that decision and it was a lack of ability on the technology people's side to be able to communicate those pieces of information to the business because I, I remember sitting with a, a infrastructure architect in the mid '90s, and he was just throwing his hands up. He goes, "I can't." We were working. I was working at the time. I was working for Ericsson Telecommunications in their North American headquarters, and I was with their their Unix Unix guru. He had come out of Bell Labs to give you an idea of Unix guru, and and he was sitting there, and he's like, "The OG." <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's he's like he's like. The business keeps making, and the, Ericsson is a technology business. He goes, the business keeps making these decisions to buy these products that they think are going to do everything from the start to the stop. And, and I can't get them to understand that what they want to do is going to lock them into a place where they can't do anything in two years. And this is in the 90s. Mm. And we haven't, I think we're still, even today, I, I remember having a discussion with an executive within the last two years. And they said, yeah, 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 we've just decided we're going to buy everything on AWS. Yep. And right there, you have vendor lock-in, right? Yeah. yeah. And 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 that and and look, there's lots of different products out there today that do will do just that. And that's the point of that vendor. They want to lock you in. And and so not singling out AWS, I'm not singling no, out no. Azure. But no. when you go to a cloud platform and you you're basically putting all your eggs in one black basket, right? You, right? You're just saying that is it. That is my that is my platform, and if you know if it goes offline, it goes offline. So you have to build in multi AZ requirements for that. That's fine, okay. But then the cost is associated with that. Yeah. But it's very difficult once you've gone in and said, right, okay, I want to build a solution based on say microservices. I want to use Lambda. All right, well. There is no lambda for Azure. There is an there's a, an equivalent, but you're basically locked into that technology. So yep. yeah, it is it's it's an interesting landscape that we're in. Again, history in IT repeats itself in very short yep. cycles. I mean, we've we've you know we've seen the proprietary like that when the IBM PC first came out back in 1981. It's it's right behind me. We were locked into Microsoft's ecosystem. IBM made a deal with with Microsoft and and then the rest is history everybody yep. was locked in and then for for you know for 20 years at least 20 years that was it and then Linux came along gave us this choice gave us a bit of gave shook up the market for 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 about 10 years there at least 10 years and then cloud came along and and again we're starting to see the same patterns so rather than you having your compute on your desktop and your servers in your own data center, now you're having your compute on some other platform, right? Yep. And just as what happened with Microsoft and IBM back in 1981, we're having the beginning of that in the cloud. So the same yep. thing is happening and there will be an evolution in time and oh, probably yeah. that will be 20 years in the making before we get a little bit more openness. But the, the word open, openness in the cloud is not one that is always synonymous so that is definitely something that I've, I've i'm definitely watching with interest and yeah. i always think and i think you and i are very very similar in our in our approaches when we think about things we're really thinking trying hard to help our customers understand tco 
and TCO yeah. is so important because that little legacy, and we're going to have a future, in fact, at some point during this podcast, we're going to have to talk about the upcoming podcasts we've got scheduled. But one of the future podcasts, I think you mentioned it earlier on, is about technical debt. What, what sort of problems technical debt can make for an organization and the benefits that they could be missing out on. And I think it's really important that, you know, technical debt can't, is, shouldn't always be seen as a bad thing. There are ways to mitigate technical debt without throwing all, all the baby out with the bathwater, right? Yeah. There are, there are ways around what you, uh, using what you have. But that said, thinking about it before you get into adopting a technology wholesale is really, really important. And that yeah. I think that is exactly what you're talking about, right? Oh, yeah. No, no, absolutely. And so, uh, look, for the last five or six years, I've been doing enterprise architecture. And one of the things... Look, there are a lot of enterprise architects out there and a lot of infrastructure architects out there that say, do not, if you make this decision, you're deciding to do technical debt, you shouldn't be doing that. And I'm going to turn my back on you if you decide to go down that path. That's not my approach. My approach is, is that it's okay to decide to do technical debt or leave technical debt in. As long as it's a conscious decision, you've looked at it, you understand the cost, you understand the value, you know, the and risk. That, that, that you understand the risk. And, and you have decided at this moment in time, I need to either do this thing that's going to cost me technical debt or leave this technical debt in because I need to do this other thing. So consciously making the decision, because the reality is, is that if you, if you say, no, 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 I don't want to make a decision at this point, you are making a decision and your decision is, is to leave everything the way it is, mm-hmm. which I'm going to tell you that in the last 30 years in IT, that's a bad decision. Every time that I have sat with a business or a leader and they have said, yeah, I don't want to make the decision right now. We need to wait six months. We need to wait a year. It has been a bad decision that has ended up biting somebody every single time. Yeah, agreed. Same here. <laughs> now, I've had, a, I've had a CIO say, you know what? We're not going to upgrade these servers. We know they're going out of support, but we're, we have decided that we're going to leave them on, you know, you talk Red Hat Six, Red Hat Three. We're going to leave these servers on Red Hat Three. Oh, this is this is before enterprise Linux. This is before Rel. That's, this is this is Red Hat Linux. That's right. right. It was yeah. and, and it and it, and to be clear, it was actually Fedora. We were Fedora at that time. Which no, was this is way before Fedora. I'm talking right. <laughs> yeah. So so they, they they said we're going to leave it on Rel Three for now because we have these business things that we cannot impact for the next six months. And, and we're going to, we know we're going to do it and we're going to budget for and plan for in six months time, we will go through the project to upgrade from rel three to, and I think we, we jumped from rel three to uh, the team. I wasn't on that team, but jumped from rel three to rel six at that time. But yeah, it's, if you're making a conscious decision, that's one thing. And that's kind of, I think that's the differentiator that that I have brought to a lot of conversations is make the right decision for your business. And the right decision can be to do what, you know, a technologist would say is a bad decision because you're deciding on bad technology. But for your business, it might make the most sense. And as long as you're doing that, understanding the decision, and that's what this podcast is really about, is helping provide a little bit of information so that you better understand the decisions you're making. So many, and and right now, I don't think it's going to be 20 years, Alistair. I think it's going to be like five. I think that I think what we're seeing is that over the last 30 years, that cycle that you're talking about has gotten shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. Can only um, be a good thing. Well, it it and it, it keeps you and I in business, but for businesses, it's very disruptive, right? So and I and I think we're seeing the exact same thing in all the emergency t- emerging technologies. So the same thing that you and I are talking about around operating systems and cloud deployments, we're seeing in the AI ML space now. And it's going through the same revolution that they went through. Software development. So I would say we had operating systems to open source operating systems to cloud to software development to AI ML and data science. And that I, I think that's kind of we we saw a revolution in each one of those areas within I mean the for the technology side, there was a little bit of room in between there. There was operating systems, open source, 
virtualization cloud and that's uh, we kind of mush virtualization yeah. and cloud together but it was it was actually two different revolutions that happened yeah they were yeah uh, virtualization came first right and then you had cloud yeah. and then we went into sort of containerization and then yeah. people started realizing that you needed orchestration so there were like iterations just yeah. you know a long it, way and we're, we're we're you know we're mature in the orchestration area now where yeah. whereas orchestration was like well i just i just want docker and i want to run a couple of containers yeah. and then yeah. people were like oh, okay well we need to manage this right okay kubernetes yeah. right all that yeah. sort of stuff that whole journey took you know five years as well yeah. so yeah, each one of these sorts of revolutions or uh, iterations does yeah it does take about five years at the moment i guess but yeah that initial the initial ones you know they I mean, I guess if you go back even further, if you're going back right into the IBM mainframe days, then you know it started out as 20, oh, yeah. 30, 40 years, right? That's and right. then I think, yes, like you say, the more people that are getting into IT, they yeah. the more these evolutions or revolutions are quicker in 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 time. Yeah, definitely. That's really interesting to to think about it. And look, I've never actually thought about the the duration of the revolutions, how, how each iteration of them is is quicker. So that that that's a very a very true statement. Well, yeah, and it actually it's one of the things that keeps me up at night because I look, I, and I'll be short about mine, and maybe in the future we can go into a little bit more depth in my my past. But so in the nineteen seventies, my dad bought a Pong game. And that changed my life at that time. I mean, it was, it was, you know, now it was, I, I had this TV in the room that I didn't have control of because anytime the TV was on, my, my parents were in control of it. Suddenly I had the ability to do things on that TV that I can interact with the TV that nobody else could do while I was doing it. And, you know, they say hindsight's twenty twenty. You see perfectly looking back, but thinking about it, I think even at that time, I understood, at least I glimpsed the potential that this could drive, not just for gaming, but what it could mean for, you know, the entire world, the entire industry, everything around it. In the 1980s, I got my first computer, a Timex Sinclair. I think you and I have talked about it, obviously running an operating system in BIOS, not an operating system that you can upgrade or anything. But I remember standing in an Apple store and looking at an, an Apple Lisa going, mm. oh, I, you know, I, I had to ride my bicycle to get to the store to look at it. And I was like, I will absolutely won't want that. But yeah, and, and you know, my career after, so after high school, I went into the military. And, and then after the military, I started working in IT. And I just slowly bootstrap. I look, I remember working on those PCs. Uh, the, mine in 95, I started out testing hard drives, 20 meg hard drives to see which ones were, were you know, failing with bad blocks. So I was running Symantec disk utilities on the hard drives to see which ones had bad blocks and which ones didn't we could use in PC. Yeah, I think we all did that, didn't we, at that time, you know? You... Oh, yeah, because, I mean, that was massively expensive. I remember desktops that had four or five of those hard drives in them trying to, you know, IDE. So you'd have you'd have the two main IDE, you have your secondary card, and then if, if it was a like a software guy, he'd have a tertiary card that would have two more IDE cables onto it. But I got into networking probably in 96 and I, I, you know, I did network architecture and engineering for some pretty big companies and that you didn't talk about how you got to New Zealand, by the way, mm. we will come back to that. And I, you know, I managed to parlay a, a network architecture role into coming to New Zealand and, and I'll be honest, look, I saw cloud coming, look from the networking side, we've been doing cloud since the nineties. Yeah. A frame relay network is a cloud. It's a it's a well, I mean, It depends on how far back you really want to take all of this because everything oh, yeah. like a, like I was kind of alluding to just a moment ago, it's all goes round in circles. Oh yeah. I mean, mainframe computing, if you if I mean it's not quite cloud, but it was all we were we were on dumb terminals in the nineteen sixties, yeah. you know, yeah. talking to you know, a central server, central system 
that nobody saw but the computer gods, right? Yeah. Today, yeah. computer gods are Amazon and Microsoft in their that's right. data centers. Um, that's, right. that's all the cloud is. It's just yeah. this big bunch well, of computers. Lambda services is so similar to a time division multiplexed mainframe that, I mean, even from a service perspective, yeah, okay, the operating system under the covers is, is different. But by the way, you can run Linux on a mainframe now. So, I, you know, I was a senior network architect with 22 years experience under my belt, and I had pretty much decided that was it. Networking, I was that was where I was going to retire. And I got the opportunity to start working in cloud. And, and what I saw in cloud was a lot of stuff we were trying to do in networking in the 90s and early 2000s for servers and software. So the orchestration that you're talking about, the fully automating the services for not just networking, but for servers and for application deployment and for, you know, businesses being able to, you know, in the nineties, if you wanted to, when we first started, if you wanted a WAN, you had to actually buy each individual circuit. You had to buy the long haul circuit. You had to buy the termination circuit. Look for every connection between two places, you had to buy three circuits. By the time we get to the early two thousands with MPLS, you were just buying into the cloud. And the only thing that you had to pay for was your link into the cloud for each one of your locations, which that's cloud services. And so when you start looking at it from uh, hosting services and from uh, software services and from database services, that is, that's the direction cloud was going. And it, and I got excited about IT again, because Alistair, I'll be honest, I was, I was like, yeah, networking's networking. Virtual networking was becoming a thing. SD-WAN and software-defined networkings was becoming a thing. And I was getting, I mean, I was playing around with it, but I I had- Networking. Yeah, it was networking. Look, I did IPv6. I worked on the working group for IPv6 in the 90s. Oh, so you're responsible for that then. Well, <laughs> I was only a, I, to be clear, I was only a scribe. I only recorded stuff and edited stuff, but- but I mean, so IPv6 wasn't surprising to me. I, I had known it was coming. Mm -hmm. Multicast networking, which has never really taken off outside of uh, some niche places, again, was interesting to me, but I didn't really see a, a big business push for it. And then I got involved in cloud and that changed everything. And I started doing cloud architecture and I, and then I realized something that from the networking side that was very difficult for me to see because the networking really is a cost center. The only thing networking can do in a business is reduce cost. You can't, unless you're a networking vendor, you can't make money from networking. You can't sell networking services unless that's what your job is. So I never really dealt with customers. I never really dealt with the business. I just assumed that they knew the technology that we were talking about. Well, when I started doing cloud architecture, I was front and center with customers and front and center with the business. And it dawned on me, these people sitting across the table have no idea what I'm talking about. They don't know what the cost is. They, they think the complication is whatever the software developer has been telling them the complication is. And whether the software developer is overplaying it or underplaying it, the business has no idea. And so I started diving into enterprise architecture and specifically around adoption of innovative technologies like containerization, microservices, adoption on cloud, AIML, VRAR services into for business, you know, driving business outcomes with these. And, and so even though I, my background is not software development, but I play one on TV. No, I'm kidding. Even though, you know, my background is not software development, I can see the business use case out of these technologies and I can help, I've helped businesses understand the true cost to be able to implement them. And that's what I've been, I, that has been driving that down for probably the last five, six years here in New Zealand. And we've been in a really great, we talk about, you know, the lockdown impacting us in New Zealand and it has, but the reality is, is that New Zealand is in an interesting place because we have been on a global stage, very successful from a bringing services. And I think part of it is, is the leanness, right? In New Zealand, we have to be very lean. We have very few people, we have very few resources, and we're down here in the, the end of the world 
yeah. left off of some that, that, that number eight wire can do attitude just yeah. roll your yeah. sleeves up and get on with it make 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 it with as little resources as possible and just get on yeah and i think i think that has that ha there have been a lot of companies you know starting in the early 2000s with you look at weta and what weta digital did that i uh, you know, we've done a lot of really good things and we've, you know, and we can, at some point in the future, we'll talk about the the landscape of, of companies here in New Zealand, I'm sure. But I think we've had, we've had that opportunity, that moment in the sun. And, and if we can capitalize on it, I think there's a massive benefit for the technology community here in New Zealand. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I was, I was looking at what, um, I think it's MB are doing with regards to the digital strategy for Aotearoa to, to deviate slightly for for a moment. And I think, you know, there's there's as many questions I have about it as answers, but it's at least nice to see that the somebody's talking about it. Yeah. Sorry? Somebody's thinking about it at least. Somebody's thinking about it. That's exactly what I was about to say. Yeah. So somebody's thinking about it and, and a digital strategy for the country is 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 coming and a budget and the budget yeah. needs to be used properly and i am yeah. not a political person but i do think that you know in new zealand if 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 we've had 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 a proper budget and had like you say the weta digital is a perfect example where the country really saw a future in you know enabling this industry Right, it gave an enablement to the the the, the Hollywood industry yeah. in New Zealand, and out of that came Weta Digital, and that, and that look at how fantastic that is. That's a legacy that we still have in this country, right? We still have fantastic movies being made here in New Zealand. So you have grade A Hollywood stars rather than stay over there in California. They're coming over here to New Zealand. Isn't that crazy? Well, yep. what what if we had the same rock star developers coming here to New Zealand and making that software here? We have yep. rock star developers starting off in New Zealand. And, and they, they, the, bus, the businesses are being encumbered so much that they can't actually fulfill the growth in New Zealand. So they have to leave New Zealand and go do business elsewhere. And that's, yep. that's really sad because we have that, we have that brain trust here already. I think it's like, you know, Scotland with football, right? As a yep. nation of people who are absolutely football daft, they, they're really crazy and they love their football and they are really good at football. But what happens is that all the people who are good at football in this tiny little nation of yet yeah, 5 million people, same number, they all end off going off to other countries who can actually yeah. pay for those to, to make them into completely professional footballers. So rather than pay, play in, in teams in Scotland, they go off and they play for teams across the world. So, yeah, yeah it, it's a bit sad. I think, you know, hopefully if we have this digital strategy in the, in the near future and the investment is realized, then I think um, the, the landscape of um, IT in New Zealand could look very different and and that would be a really, oh, yeah. really great thing to really great thing to see and, and we are actually you know starting to see this this the beginnings of investment from other companies so that kind of the other way around so we're seeing yeah. you know microsoft putting you know putting their money where their mouth is and saying look guys we're going to put a data center into new zealand and we're going to put azure into new zealand that's huge and and you know look you can you can see what you like about it whether it was a marketing you know it was a bit of marketing, a bit of spin, but it worked. It worked yep. on many levels. It worked for Microsoft. Yep. It worked for New Zealand. Yep. And it worked for the consumer because it started a competitive streak with AWS. Yep. And now AWS has then said, look, we're going to put a data center in New Zealand too. And that and that's just, you know, great for the consumer. So yep. we have we have all of this um here in New Zealand. And that helps with so many different things that we've we've struggled for, data sovereignty and so forth like that in the past. Yep. So that all that sort of stuff. Well, that's a whole whole nother podcast that we can oh, talk about that. Absolutely. So so let's talk real quick about what the future looks like for the podcasts. We don't really have, a, we haven't really set an order yet. So I, I can't commit to when these are going to come out. We may actually get preempted with the COVID pass integration. Uh, we may have uh, Martin Arndt, chief technology officer, head principal dude, 
Uh, crazy scientist. Yeah, to come on to the podcast. And so it may it may disrupt our, our order, but in, in, in no particular order, we, we do we're going to have a technical debt discussion. That is going to be a podcast all on its own. I think that may be the most important podcast we do in the next year, in my opinion. Well, I think it's I think it's impacting every single company in ways that is only going to get worse. We we're going to have a security discussion. I know near and dear to your heart is a security podcast. And, you know, it doesn't have to security doesn't have to be a break your company to be secure. But at the same time, you can't ignore security until you have an event happen. We're going to have an AI and digital transformation discussion and what AI and automation has to do with digital transformation. And we may even just talk digital transformation that because I think the term digital transformation is misused. And I think businesses think, yeah, they, they think, oh, I'm in the cloud now. I've been digitally transformed. But we'll go through that. I'm going, we are going to get a little technical. I would like to do an enterprise architecture and agile discussion. These are two areas that are completely misunderstood and and a belief that they cannot play, uh, you know, against each other and with the same outcomes. And I think there's there's value in each, and together they can actually raise the value of both of them. We so GCP has a new 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 ML ops or machine learning operations, and we can talk about what ML ops is. They have a new platform service platform called Vertex. We're going to do an episode on Vertex and dive into it. And we have a, would you call Yusuf a data engineer? Yusuf a data engineer? Yeah, why not? I don't know. Well, we'll, we um, yeah, we'll, we'll ask him what he, want, what, what he wants what to, he call wants to be called. But, but uh, yeah, he's, he's a data engineer of sorts. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to do a uh, episode on Neo4j and, and graph databases. And there's graph databases that are a little bit esoteric. And if you're not deep inside the technology, it's sometimes difficult to understand what they do and what they can do for a business. So I think if that that bent, we will be talking about from a business perspective, how these that technology can be useful. Yeah, totally different way to think about your data. And I think yeah. that's really important. You know, if anything, over the last five plus years, I think, you know, I started off this podcast today talking about how, you know, businesses started to evolve technology and 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 started to be a business-led conversation. Yeah. Well, these days, right? So that that was the that was a, a an enabler to where we are now, which is starting to have businesses looking at a data-led conversation, right? Yeah, because data is the biggest value, most valuable, rich infant part of of your of your business today unused right? unused value in most businesses right so we we all know that, that we've got the data that we have and we're using that and we're getting value from it but the like the the, the potential for for the value in 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 the hidden hidden value i should say in that data is massive like we could yeah. you know a lot of organizations could be sitting on you know you know scratching the surface you know we say we use what twenty percent of our brain, and underneath yeah. that, there's all this potential that we're not using. Well, the same with our data; that's just that's literally right. sitting in databases or disks somewhere in our in our in our or, systems, or in filing drawers, or in filing drawers. Goodness. So, so, so yeah, really, really could be quite an interesting. I, I I listen to Yusuf talk about graph databases and and just the way that it it's a completely different way to look at. The information that your business has and so i, I was i was i was really uh, interested in that i think that's a really great talk so I'll, yeah it'd be great to to hear him on this podcast talk about that and and yeah we'd also like to have um you along if you've if you listening have your own points that you'd like to raise being a guest speaker then yeah get in touch i think that would be that would be really interesting to so speaking to of that to. alistair how can people find you on the internet and get in touch with you oh goodness how can they get on well, they can email me. Let's let's do the old school ways first of all. So email is Alistair A L I S T A I R dot Ross Servian S E R V I A N dot com. And you can also uh, look me up on Twitter, Alistair J Ross or AJ Ross NZ. And you can find me uh, on YouTube as well. I have my own YouTube channel. If you it's like good. things like vintage computers, you'll find it, me there as well. So, it's a good, it's a good channel. I subscribe. The, the, there's a few ways, yeah. And, and for somebody who's very interested in, in infosec, 
the 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 only problem is that it, real infosec diehards like to make themselves completely unseen the on the internet. So when you Google yeah. your name, you're not found. Unfortunately, I, ca I can't be one or the other. Right. So yeah. um, I I can be found Fair on the internet, and I'm okay with that. I'm all right. I, I understand the implications. <laughs> I accept. That's one of the you know the risk matrices that we're talking yep. about earlier on. You, you just understand the risk. Yep. Okay. The I value. The value yeah. is there. And you can find me at on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Sean G. Muller, S-E-A-N-G-M-U-L-L-E-R, and or and or email me at Sean.Muller at Servian.com. And that is all for the technology whispers. Yeah, thanks very much for listening. I really hope you've enjoyed and uh, yeah, I'd love to hear your feedback. Awesome.